We interrupt this previously scheduled broadcast to make you aware of a rapidly developing situation and connect you to these Canadian space communications. Um, Canada, this is Beagle. We've got a problem. Go ahead, Beagle. What's the problem? Canada, you told us we'd be flying in a vacuum, right? Beagle, say again. What's your problem? Canada, Beagle, it's space. Ryan and Aaron, right? Okay, so uh, tonight we're talking about UFOs. Okay, and so uh, Ryan, do you believe in UFOs? Uh, it's kind of hard not to. Like to think that out of like the vast amount that space is, that there's not something else out there that potentially could foster the same amount of life as us. Like, I think that you have to think there might be something. Okay, and how about you, Aaron? I kind of agree. I think that the word UFO kind of has this negative connotation. Um, so maybe there is life out there, but I really don't know if it's unidentified flying objects and stuff like that. So. Okay, but do you believe if there are if there is life out there, then without using the term UFO, do you think that may, that they visited Earth or not? It's hard to say. Um, I'm going to say no. 
No, you don't think so. Okay, Ryan, do you think that they visited Earth if there if there is such a thing as aliens? No, I feel like we would visit them first. I think it would straight up be like Star Trek. I think that we would go out and explore and then like find these other things. So like we're pretty advanced. So I think that that would be like the logical thing for us to go out. Okay. All right. So um do you know what um for people who believe in UFOs, or for people, I guess I should say maybe skeptics of UFOs, uh, do you know what the number one problem is um, in proving that aliens actually exist uh, to people who don't believe? No access to Area 51. <laughs> Lack of consistent evidence. Yeah, okay. Well, the, the answer is this. The, the distance through space, that, that if there was life out there, how far away it would have to be. Okay, are you guys into astronomy at all or anything like that? Uh, I gotta read my horoscope. <laughs> I don't even do that. <laughs> no. That's a, that's astrology. Okay. No, not really. But. Okay. Um, so, do you know do you know know the name of the galaxy that Earth is located in? Milky Way. Is that correct? I believe so. I don't think is that a scientific term. I don't know. The Milky Way. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. Okay, Aaron scores one. All right. Can you guess how long it would take uh, to cross the Milky Way galaxy traveling at the speed of light? I want to say 113 years. 113 years? Okay, how about you, Aaron? Similar, like a lifetime. A lifetime? Okay. How about this? 100,000 years at the speed of light to cross from one edge to, to cross from one edge of the, the Milky Way to the other. Uh, now, we're in the Milky Way. Do you know the name of the next closest galaxy to us? I can't honestly know. <laughs> I don't know. Klingon space, I don't know. <laughs> Klingon space, that's a good guess. No, it's, uh, it's called Andromeda. Oh my gosh, and uh, do you know how long it would take to get there to Andromeda now, traveling at the speed of light? So you said it was 100,000 years. Let's say a million. One million? How about you? Well, okay, no, he said 100,000 to reach the tip from one side. To, I'm thinking it's going to be like 500,000. Okay. Would you believe 2 million years? Does that mean I win? <laughs> that, well, I guess you were closest. We so. all lose, actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, so can you see why people might have a, an issue believing then that, that somebody could visit from another planet or galaxy or whatever? Yeah, but what if you could teleport? If you could teleport, yeah, I guess, I guess if you could, then, uh, but wouldn't you, I don't even know what kind of properties of, uh, of whatever would, would even, uh, I don't even know what to discuss about teleporting, man. Right, no. See, I just threw a wrench right there. <laughs> took you for a loop. No, I think though, if you were to teleport, that might actually happen. Think about it. Cause like, you're like instant, right? So as fast as light is, you know, you're teleporting. Like. Yeah. So how many times have you teleported in your life, Ryan? Uh, <laughs> there's one <laughs> okay man <laughs> um, so uh, do you think that uh, okay some of the other problems besides the distance is obviously fuel volume and that type of thing and um, traveling if you're, if you're traveling at the speed of light for 2 million years and you hit a dust particle that's just floating out in the middle of space what do you think would happen probably explode you would explode. What do you think the chances over 2 million years? I got an idea. Okay, so you were talking about, like, the fuel issue, right? Right. What if you went to solar energy and then you relied on solar flares to recharge your batteries so that you could keep going? Yeah, but you'd be millions of light years away from stars. 
Well, yeah, but one star. You know, like that means there's multiple stars, right? Just saying. <laughs> there are multiple stars, yeah, but but I mean, if it, if it's that far between galaxies, then for two million years, at the speed of light, then there is no there's no stars. Yeah, the Energizer Bunny really has nothing to say there. <laughs> right. Okay. This is this is where the the questions might turn even stranger than the ones that I've asked you. Okay, and and a little bit spiritual. I told you this is a spiritual speaker's corner. Okay, and so. There's a guy named Gary Bates, and he's a UFOologist, which means he studies UFOs, abductions, that kind of thing, obviously. I don't know where he is. Have you heard of him? I Honestly, I think there's a Vice documentary on this guy. I don't know, but um, he, he's written books about it, and he says in, in people that he's interviewed who claim to have been abducted by aliens, um, he says there's a striking similarity between alien abductions and the f- and uh, and that is the fact that they can be halted in in one name. Do you know what that name might be? This is what Gary Bates says, anyways. No, I have no idea. It's probably God. Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're right. That's what he says, anyways. In in interviewing people, that's right. You caught on to the theme. Yeah. I did. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, do you think that might be true? And and if that is true, I guess is my question. If that is true, why do you think that might be? I, I really don't know. Like, I can't say one or the other. I think that in both cases, just because, like, I don't know, we're both university students, we both were educated to a certain degree, you have to look at the facts, and you have to look at that. There may be consistent evidence, but you're looking at a secondhand account, you're looking at people talking about it and having the opportunity to get more information from one another. And so you can't really disclose that maybe they had communication with one another. Maybe they could have said, well, hey, someone on this side had this similar experience and I've been influenced by that. So Okay, so you think that they all conspired together to say the same thing? Well, conspire is a strong word. I definitely think that once an idea is kind of put out there, it's difficult for people to come up with something original. Okay, what about you, Ryan? Do you think that uh, if that is true, why, why do you think that might be? Everybody's stories are kind of similar. Um, I don't know. Maybe they have some sort of out of body. I don't know. I guess when people they claim that they visit, like they briefly die or something like that, they kind of everybody's like, "Oh, you see this light," or something like that, right? It's kind of that when you don't know how to describe something, you lean on other people's descriptions. Hi, this is Corey, and sitting in the studio with me for the third week is our friend Gary Bates of Creation Ministries International, and it's great to see you again, Gary. Thank you. Good to be here again. Uh, Just in case uh, this is the first episode you're hearing in this series, Gary serves as the head of ministry for the Australian office of CMI, and he's been speaking on the creation evolution issue since 1990. Now, more recently, Gary's become an expert in UFO phenomenon and associated extraterrestrial beliefs. In fact, he's written an Amazon.com top 50 bestseller about the subject called Alien Intrusion, UFOs, and the Evolution Connection. And I can tell you firsthand that this is a powerful book that you'll definitely want to pick up for yourself. Well, Gary, in week one, we broke the ice on the science of fiction behind the aliens phenomena. And last week, we explored the possibility of life on other planets. And this week, this week we're, we're moving into warp speed and talking about the likelihood of space travel. It may be cool for Captain Kirk and hip for Han Solo, but how scientifically feasible is the concept of space travel in real life? What can you share about that? Sure. In fact, I've got uh, quotes in my book from science fiction writers and observers, and uh, they'll say that the number one problem for all science fiction and the idea of extraterrestrials is uh, the the travel distance problem. 
I mean, we've just got to try to comprehend how big the universe is. You know, our own Milky Way, uh, which I mentioned before, of which our sun is just one of maybe 200 billion other stars, is 100,000 light years across. So that's just our own, our own uh, Milky Way. So if we wanted to travel, if we could travel at the speed of light, and we'll talk about that in a moment, it would take me 100,000 years just to travel across our own Milky Way. Wow. Now, when I leave, if I could travel at the speed of light, once I leave our Milky Way, the next galaxy I reach would take 2 million years. Of travel. Of travel, if I could travel at the speed of light. Now, the speed of light is 300,000 kilometers per second. Okay. Okay. So just imagine. You've lost me already, but keep going. (laughs) If if you could travel at the speed of light at 300,000 kilometers per second, it would take you 100,000 years to traverse just our own Milky Way. Amazing. And once you leave our galaxy and travel to the next galaxy, uh, which is Andromeda, it would take you 2 million years. 2 million years. And the next galaxy after that would take you 20 million years years. So you've got to come up with a mechanism to try to uh, avoid this. Well, let's just have a look at something we can comprehend. Um, I've been fortunate enough to visit the Kennedy Space Center uh, a few years ago, just after the launch of my book, and I actually was preaching at a church there that was the closest church to the Kennedy Space Center down in Florida, and I know there were NASA scientists uh, there at the meeting. So they certainly would have corrected me if what I'm about to say is incorrect. You know, the most powerful vehicle we've ever built is the uh, the space shuttle yep. and also the Saturn V rockets that took man to the moon during the Apollo uh, missions. They can produce around about 3.3 million kilograms of thrust. Now, just firing those engines for two minutes, okay? Now, let's, just talking about the solid rocket boosters on the space shuttle, if I could convert that to electrical energy, firing those engines for two minutes, that'd be enough power to fuel 87,000 homes for a full day. For how? For a few seconds, you said? For two minutes, firing them for two minutes. minutes, 87,000 homes for a full day. That's as many as most cities. So even at the best speed of Apollo, just to reach the next star to our own sun in our own galaxy, Proxima Centauri, you'd be talking in the order of hundreds of thousands of years. Right, just to reach. Okay, now, yep. even if you could travel at the speed of light to reach Proxima Centauri, it would take you about four point two years. Wow! Okay. So that's how big it is. So the energy requirements are huge. When, now, when you're in space, people think because you're weightless, you don't need the same energy requirements as you do on Earth to get around. I mean, you know, I often ask people. I say, well, if you imagine I'm up in the space station, and uh, you know, mission control radio up, and they said, hey, Gary, can you get on the spacesuit, mate? And I want you to get outside. And we need you to push the space station two meters to the left. And most people think, oh, can you do that? I, I don't know. They just don't know. But they think because things are weightless that you don't need the same energy requirements. In fact, if I tried to push the space station, what you'd see is me going backwards, right? Hmm. So the same laws of physics apply. Now, by example, if I was to take something, say, the size of a softball, maybe weighing about half a kilogram. Yeah. And if I wanted to accelerate something the size of a softball to just 50% the speed of light, just half the speed of light, just to accelerate it, it would take the energy requirements of 98 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs. Oh just, that's just to accelerate <laughs> it to half the speed okay. of light. Okay. Now, once i at that speed, I'll just keep going through space at that speed. But when I get to my destination, you know, where I want to go, another planet or something and I want to slow down, I've got to use the same energy requirements to slow down. So that's another 98 Hiroshima-sized bombs worth. And then when I want to speed up again for the return voyage and then decelerate here, the same energy requirements. So actually you've got four times that 
initial energy requirements to make a return trip. Just doesn't look that complicated on Star Trek, i got to be honest. Certainly doesn't. <laughs> Certainly doesn't. There are other problems when you're travelling around. There's dust. It's estimated there's about 100,000 particles of dust for every cubic kilometre of space. Now, if you impacted with just a grain of dust at half the speed of light, that would be like 10 tonnes of TNT going off inside your spaceship. Hmm. If you hit an object the size of a pea, it'd be like uh, 2.2 atomic bombs worth of energy going off. Now, if you're a you know a closet Trekkie like me, <laughs> you realise that they have yeah. you know lots of interesting gadgets. And again, but it, what we have to understand, it's science fiction. They have these deflector arrays, okay, mm-hmm. to deflect approaching objects. But if you imagine you're travelling, think of that in Star Wars. That was just they yeah. just do it. But Star well, Trek's a lot more intellectual, I think. <laughs> if you're travelling at yeah. many times the speed of light. In other words, you've got to be able to detect grains of dust trillions of kilometers in advance of your True. position. Yep. It's impossible, right? There are other problems like G-forces. Now, you know, you've probably been to some of those theme parks and you feel how you pull you yep. know, negative Gs right. uh, and all that. Now, to give you an example, uh, 1G, by the way, is equivalent to Earth's gravity. That's what it's based on. But Air Force pilots, uh, when they pull negative Gs in tight turns, they could pull up to about 9 Gs. If you've ever seen those guys, uh, you know, the light aircraft planes that they, yep, you know, right, come, right, right, come right, up with yep. the series is called, but they actually have the little G meter there and they're pulling up to 8 or 9 Gs. But those guys have to undergo special training because what they do is they try to constrict their muscles to reduce their blood flow so they don't black out. Now, if you and I tried it first up, we'd, we'd probably pass out. So that's around about 8 to 9 Gs. Okay. Now, when Captain Jean-Luc Picard sits on board of the Starship Enterprise and he says, engage or make it so, and they jump into warp speed, warp is much faster than the speed of light, they'd actually be exerting millions of Gs upon the occupants. Mm. Millions of Gs. But, of course, Star Trek, again, has these science fiction ideas of inertial dampers. So it saves people getting splattered up against the walls when they do U-turns at warp factor 8 or something like this. Right, you know. right, right. Again, it's in the realms of science fiction. So you've got a problem that you can't overcome. So what they really do is resort to other improbable ideas to solve it. Right. So this is the big yeah. problem with interstellar travel. Another issue is um, cosmic radiation. Now, it's one of the most serious problems we have with even astronauts sitting on the space station for several months. Uh, because, you know, every time you and I fly in a plane, believe it or not, we get zapped with a little increased dosage of cosmic radiation. It's at harmless levels. But as your speed increases, the exposure to cosmic radiation increases. So as you were approaching the speed of light, the amount of cosmic radiation doses you'd be receiving would fry you, basically. Mm. Okay, so there's another problem. But here is the single biggest problem that we have with the idea that people can travel faster than the speed of light at warp speed or something else. And that is that it, within the physical boundaries of our time-space universe that you and I exist in, we know it's there, we know it's real, right. we can do demonstrable experiments and test the laws of physics, um, it would actually be impossible to travel at the speed of light. Now, you might remember from school, uh, those physics classes that said, yeah, as your speed increases, your mass increases. Right, yeah, yep, sure. So as you approach the speed of light, Einstein theorized, and there's good experimental evidence to suggest that he's correct, that as you approach the speed of light, your mass would become infinite. Okay, in other words, you'd have to convert every atom in the universe to energy to try to get yourself to the speed of light. In other words, it's impossible. Hmm. And that's why science fiction comes up with ideas like hyperspace, 
what they're actually suggesting is that you're actually dropping out of our space-time continuum and travelling into in the non-space, right, the, so the nothingness, and then you just jump back in when you want. So for the benefit of those who are not scientific or physics students or whatever, what you're saying is that all these things fall into the realm of the physical laws don't permit yes. space travel. Yeah, and you've, you've said it very well because a lot of people say to me, well, hang on, in the future, you don't know what technologies could be developed. But you can't overcome the laws of physics, Corey. Right. We're, we're limited right. by the laws of physics. We're right. limited by gravity. In other words, we have to build incredible propulsion systems to escape gravity. You know, I could just see that being the logical argument that, well, if there was beings that were more intelligent somewhere else, then mm. maybe they... But yeah, the, the laws of physics, are the law, that's what we call them laws. I mean, they are what they are and... That's right. So now in terms of, uh, you had mentioned in an earlier episode um, that people do see lights and they, they don't sort of move as a typical aircraft would move. And and uh, and I don't want to steal the thunder from, from uh, episode four, but what do you think people are seeing then? And maybe this is sort of dipping into, I don't want to steal the thunder from the last, uh, last part of the series. What do you think people are seeing then? Because clearly people are seeing something in the sky. Sure. Uh, and if the space travel thing is, is out, mm. uh, what what can we explain that? Yeah, be? well, we did mention in the last episode, 90% of all sightings can be explained naturalistically, but there is a small percentage that defy naturalistic explanation. And some of the leading movers and shakers, I mean, Dr. J. Allen Hynek was a former, former government researcher under, under Project Blue Book for the US government. And he started out as a skeptic, as a UFO skeptic. He thought they could all be explained naturalistically, you know, man-made or some natural phenomena in the sky. But he said there was a small percentage that could not be explained, seen by multiple credible witnesses. Look, just a couple of years ago, I don't know if you recall seeing on the, uh, on the news broadcast, the Mexican Air Force actually released footage of these lights hovering. Yeah. And they, no explanation to this day. In fact, one of the largest UFO sightings in history was something known as the, the Mexico wave, a genuine Mexican wave, I suppose. But <laughs> they had yeah. lots of these shiny silvery craft appearing amongst the skyscrapers in downtown Mexico City that were seen by thousands of people. And people had their video cameras trained on, trained on them, mm -hmm. and they were there. But there's never been an explanation. So one is that one explanation is people say, well, if we can see them that clearly, the government knows that they're there. Therefore, the government must know what's going on. Okay. So either the government's it's hiding a conspiracy theory. Yeah, they're either <laughs> hiding the truth about UFOs, yeah. or this is government technology that they're not revealing. All right. And a lot of Christians tend to think the second explanation. It's, but the thing is that you know. As some of the leading researchers realized, is they felt they were dealing with something um, intangible. In other words, how can a nuts and bolts spacecraft change its shape and morph? How can they fly into one another at thousands of kilometers an hour and become one object and then move off in a completely different direction? Mm -hmm. How can they just disappear off of a radar screen? And someone like Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who uh, incidentally, um, Steven Spielberg's movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind was actually based upon his writings and his research. Okay. And at the end of the movie, if people ever watch it again, he makes a little cameo. He's a guy with some glasses and a grey beard and a pipe. Yeah, I love that. I'll look for that. I like that movie. And uh, <laughs> the, by the, incidentally, the lead character in the movie was a Frenchman. You might recall that. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, his name in the movie was Lacombe, but he was based upon a real ufologist by the name of Dr. Jacques Vallée, who I believe lives in Canada. Wow. And uh, he was a real scientist. He's written lots of books on the subject, and Valet and um, and Heineck, in my view, are the two leading ufologists there's ever been. Okay, and they tried to approach the information 
from a scientific perspective, not allowing their religious beliefs, they weren't Christians, but I mean by religious as equally believing there is no God, right. to influence it. And someone like Heineck, he was particularly troubled because he said, he used words like paranormal or paraphysical. Valet did the same thing. He said, these things don't appear to be coming from other worlds. They appear to be coming from other dimensions. Okay. And so as a Christian, I believe you know, that the Bible can explain that phenomena. It talks about another dimension, a spiritual dimension, mm-hmm. and it tells us that Jesus was also a visitor from that dimension. Right. Okay, he, he came to the earth. So when we're dealing with things that you and I can't test in those other dimensions, obviously we're going to find it very, very difficult to come up with a cogent uh, and realistic explanation. So people then tend to resort to all sorts of strange and weird ideas. Mm-hmm. But the fact is there are a small percentage that are very, very difficult to explain naturalistically. Mm-hmm. However, saying that, of course, you have to presume that you can't explain it naturalistically, that you have that you are in possession of all of the facts. Right. For example, some things have been seen. The Roswell incident is an example where it really was a secret government operation. It was nothing otherworldly or incredibly vast technology. It was just a, an array of balloons that they put up with sonar listening devices to try to monitor a, a Soviet above-ground nuclear tests because we didn't have satellites okay. in those days. Yep. So when the material crash landed on a ranch in New Mexico, why didn't the government tell us what it was? Well, because they didn't want the Russians to know that they were eavesdropping on them. Right. So it was secret. Right, right. So when there was secrecy, people say, ah, the government must know something. They're covering up. You know, Maybe they really have harvested alien technology and, and it just extrapolates on their... From there, really a lot, I think, depending upon people's uh, people's views. Incidentally, I've uh, just as a side, I've actually been invited to Roswell next year. Every year they celebrate the anniversary of the Roswell crash down in Roswell. Okay. Thousands of people descend onto town. I've actually been invited as a keynote speaker for the Roswell convention uh, next year. Wow. So that'll be a that'll first, be for, first for a Christian. Exciting. Well, so what's really happening and uh, and what's the solution? we got to stop right there, but thanks again to Gary Bates of CMI for joining us. And as we close, this week we've been talking about space travel. And um, do you know that someday, maybe sooner than later, you'll actually travel through space and time as we know it into eternity. So can I ask, can I ask you this? Are you ready for that trip? Please, please listen very carefully to this truth about how you can be. Will you be with God in heaven? The Bible says that the price of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So how many times have you sinned? How many times have you lied, lusted, stolen, hated, and used God's name in vain? Because every time you have, you've sinned against holy God, alienating yourself from Him. Even your thinking is against Him. You will face the second death, which is eternity in the lake of fire. But Jesus Christ paid for sins, taking them and God's wrath against sinners upon himself. He shed his blood and died on the cross in place of sinners. And then he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, just as the scriptures foretold that he would. To be reconciled to God, you must repent and trust that Jesus died for your sins. Your sins will be forgiven. God will grant you eternal life, and you will spend forever with God in heaven. Isn't that good news? Hi, this is Albert Moeller, and you're listening to the Cross Current Radio Show. 
You've just been in the studio with TCC Radio. Please visit tccradio.com for resources and full-length street interviews related to this series. On behalf of the entire team here at TCC, thanks again for listening and for keeping the cross-current in our culture.